0: On this episode of The Higher Ed Shift, I'm joined by Tissa Silver Kennedy from the Maryland Center for Collegiate Financial Wellness. Colleges and universities sit at a unique intersection of financial wellness, where they can either set a student up for generational financial improvement or bury them in debt without a degree. Tissa and I discuss the importance of financial literacy and financial aid literacy among our college going population and what she is doing to set Maryland's college students up for financial wellness, and how McPhew came to be. Let's jump into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of The Higher Ed Shift. I'm your host, Amy Glenn, VP of Student Financial Success. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Tisa Silver-Kennedy. The founder and director of the Maryland Center for Collegiate Financial Wellness. Welcome, Tisa.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Amy.
0: I'm really excited to start to kind of get the word out about what you guys are doing at the center. And so I would love to have you take a minute and introduce yourself and the center to our listeners.
1: Wonderful. So I am the founder and director of the Maryland Center for Collegiate Financial Wellness, where we are helping students and families build financial life skills and empowering them to thrive. The center is a new nonprofit organization that began in July of 2021. And uh, since then, we have embarked on an informal listening tour (laughs) so that we can hear from our two main audiences, one being students and families The other being campus-based professionals about how we can help them make more informed decisions about the college and career school attendance and financing process, and then help those individuals who are on campuses doing the work, find better, more efficient ways to increase the financial wellness of their students.
0: What you're saying is you have lots of free time on your hands because there's no work (laughs) to do in this space, right? Oh, none at all, (laughs) none at all. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And you guys started up, I guess... I don't know. Is 2021 still the middle of the pandemic? Yeah, it is. Yes. Right? Yes.
1: (laughs) Great time to start a nonprofit, (laughs) right?
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness. But very, though, probably a very difficult time to start, a very integral um, and pivotal time in college financing and financial wellness for us to start, given Given the increased financial pressures that students and families have felt with COVID, it, it just seems natural that we would really amplify the discussions and the research in this area. Absolutely. But were you already in consideration pre-COVID or did, did the COVID pandemic and the financial strains on the nation kind of amplify or, or accelerate the decision?
1: So pre-COVID, we were in the space of thinking about what are we going to do? Because um, all of this came from a study called SPIN, which is short for Campus-Based Financial Education in Maryland, a survey of post-secondary institutions. Now you see why I call it SPIN. But um, (laughs) SPIN, (laughs) SPIN was a study that was commissioned through the Cash Campaign of Maryland, which is another nonprofit organization that's involved in financial education in Maryland, specifically in Baltimore. But they wanted to know what's happening with college and career students across the state. Is their financial education being provided? To what degree? Who's doing the work? Is it something that's happening everywhere or just in pockets? And if so, why? So I conducted the study and heard from maybe 30 or so individuals that represented schools that ran the gamut from community colleges to private universities, graduate professional institutions. And we just wanted to know what is happening with financial education on these campuses. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that on a positive side, most people reported that something was happening. But then when we started to dig into what the word something meant, something could mean There's a fire on the door outside of the restrooms, you know, that says, hey, (laughs) mind your money, you know, or something like that. But then there could be on the other end, there's a person in the financial aid office who is there to help students with personal finance issues. And then there's a lot of space in between. So another thing that we found was that the people who responded to the survey said that they would overwhelmingly agreed to participate in a statewide network of individuals who wanted to advance collegiate financial wellness. So in looking at their struggles and also comparing it to my personal experience working in a financial aid office, but being responsible for campus-wide financial education and wellness programming, I thought, okay, we have an opportunity here to get people together so that we can move farther and faster together. And so it began as a study, it turned into this informal network. And then once the pandemic, uh, once we got settled into that, and campuses were shut down, and everybody was zooming, you know, yeah, just thinking there's time, there's no better time than the present to really mobilize this group. And that's where the idea from to create came from to create the center.
0: So that's kind of where you guys are sitting now. It um how I know you talked a little bit kind of about the evolution started as the study, and now you're in a little bit of, of a listening chore to kind of figure out what's going on it. So talk to me a little bit about how you're currently working with colleges and universities to, to gather that kind of next, next set of data and figure out the next steps of the center.
1: I'm sorry. Am I might, I think my computer froze. Can you do me a favor and repeat that question? Oh
0: yeah, no worries. So okay, um, thanks. no worries. I was, what a. Talk to me about how McFew is working with colleges and universities now. I know that you said that you're you're still kind of gathering information and doing a lot of listening. And um, What does that look like for you guys?
1: So a lot of that listening involves people who work in financial aid offices, because even if they're not the champions of financial education and wellness programs on their campuses, they are involved or should be involved since a lot of students come to them for the money to pay for their higher education. So we're in constant contact with people who work in financial aid. We're also talking to a lot of faculty members, enrollment management professionals, and we're starting to get into the space of student government associations because we also want to hear from the students. One thing that came out of the SPIN study was this perception among the survey participants that the students weren't interested. They don't care about money, they don't care about financial literacy. And I thought, I think that's strong you know, to say that they don't care. It's It could be that the way that the programs are being offered to them doesn't speak to the things that they care about. So we have to have the students at the table along with our campus-based professionals to craft those solutions that maximize the use of our resources and also have the greatest impact on the students. So we're just listening, taking notes, (laughs) trying to see how we can help the students and our campus-based professionals best in one area for our campus-based professionals is just connecting them with other people on campus. Because sometimes there's someone in financial aid that's doing something that no one knows about. There's another faculty member, let's say in the College of Business, that's holding workshops here and there, but no one in financial aid knows about it. There's a student group that's interested in knowing more about personal finances and might engage an external organization to provide some workshops or resources. And again, they're all working in these isolated pockets, but they're on the same campus. So what we've been able to do is come in and say, hey, I know you're in financial aid, but you got a faculty member across the street that's doing this. Why don't you two connect and we'll see what we can build out of that. So much of this is a journey in partnerships across the state as well as on the campuses.
0: Isn't that amazing to you sometimes that you as a third party need to come in and even just say to people like, Hey, did you know that faculty member X is doing this like, <laughs> like 30 steps away from where you're sitting right now? And it's, it is happening. I think you're right that it's, it's happening, but it's, it's disconnected right now. Mm-hmm. And some of the institutions that have done this really well have been able to pull in cross functionally like you're saying, financial aid, advising, faculty and staff. I mean, when we ha- if we have a business college, why aren't we utilizing those resources, those people who are going to be financial professionals to continue to educate their peers and build some type of a peer counseling finance center, right? And I know that some people have done these. I'm not like not coming up with something new here, but I if we could do <laughs> more of it, mm-hmm. it, it would be so powerful. I know also I had read Inside Higher Ed did a student voices survey recently around financial literacy. I'm not sure if you've you've mm-hmm. seen that, but it did, it talked exactly about what you're saying across the nation, that there are a lot of colleges that have resources, but students either aren't aware of it or they're presented in a way that maybe they don't understand the connection or the value. And I think we need to, we need to start figuring out how to, how to talk to students in a way that they understand and they're going to, they're going to consume it because they want, I mean, we all go to college to, to get to that next level. And part of that next level is financial And so I think that there's just so much interconnectivity here that I'm dying for people to be able to do this well. I was wondering, so you guys are engaging with college students and with the administrators, whether it's faculty, staff, financial aid, are you doing anything to engage with students throughout the shopping process for college? So students who are in the high school space to to kind of
1: get a pulse on where they are? Yes, we are moving into that space because we want to hit people who are just anywhere on that continuum of considering higher ed option in higher ed and striving to be successful and out of higher ed, for the most part, looking to repay those loans. Because we think about success is not just, I have the diploma or the credential. Yeah. I want people to think about success for themselves, define success for themselves and manage their finances in such a way that success is achievable. So we want to hit everyone from perspective to alumni.
0: Yeah, I, I love that because they sometimes... I feel like sometimes people expect like a student can walk into financial aid and financial aid can like impart all of the knowledge that a student mm-hmm. needs to be able to understand that funding process magically. And for me, <laughs> the education starts in high school. Like We need to start building the foundation, the terminology, the ideas with students because college is The largest, most complex purchase that a student is making at that point in their life, right? Like the only thing that might be more complex is a house, and I feel like the I buying business has done a really great job educating and making that process really seamless. So I feel like this this purchase point of college is the biggest financial friction right now that people have in their life. So I'm super excited as you can tell um, (laughs) by the work that you guys are doing. So in talking with those students and families, what do you see that most students and families are confused about? Where are their largest concerns right now?
1: I think the largest concern is that college is just too expensive, or at least that's Mm -hmm. the perception. So people think it's too expensive. So I'm just not even going to try to go at all because there's no way that I can pay for it. And then at the point that people hear about student loans, it's I see two things. One is that, okay, well, student loans are available, so you can just borrow those. And after you get out of school, you'll have more than enough money to pay them back. And then the other thing that I see is people who are on the opposite end who say debt we don't want debt, you know. <laughs> debt is bad, it doesn't matter what kind of debt it is. So, you know, you're gonna have to figure out something else because debt is not the move. Yeah. So it's definitely not there's not a universal opinion out there that I'm seeing on student loans, but it's kind of like pockets of extremes, yeah. totally anti-debt versus oh, it's there, let's do it, and you're gonna be perfectly fine when you get out. And the second piece is troublesome for me because. I, I'll age myself here. I know I came up during a time when it was, you're going to college. There's not an option. You're going to college because that's the way to go to earn enough money to be able to have the things that successful people should have. Nice home, safe community, good job, solid income, potential to build wealth. And over time, that ROI, that picture of the ROI is just not looking the same, So for people that look at student loans as a way to increase access, sure they do because they provide money to people that wouldn't necessarily be able to pay out of pocket for that higher ed experience. But at the same time, people need to be successful in that higher ed endeavor for the that scale, you know, yeah. <laughs> to, to work there with the being able to generate the income and build the wealth to pay back that debt. And that's the part that I'm seeing that for a lot of people just hasn't panned out.
0: Yeah. And and that's where that balance that you're talking about is where a lot of the complexity in, in figuring out which college is a good financial fit for Mm -hmm. students comes in i too was a child of the you're going to go to college days but was firmly on the side of you're going to go to college but we have no idea how you're going to pay for it Uh, and and so there is there is that balance where access to loans was definitely a necessity but what's the right amount to take and and how do we help students better understand the gainful employment path, I think is, is hard. And I personally, I know there's been a lot of talk on the federal level about gainful employment regulations and rewriting those. I would like to see those expanded to all institutions because I feel like every institution has a responsibility to show a quality outcome. For their students. And I think that, that that transparency might might help a little bit. So is, getting back to, to McFew just for a second, is what you guys are doing unique to Maryland or have you seen similar models in, in other
1: states? So before we created few I looked to other states to see what was happening. Um, I looked to Texas and their Association for Collegiate Financial Education Professionals also, mm-hmm. looked to Indiana and Ohio. Yeah. And I found so many people that were willing to share so much with me <laughs> and help us figure out what we were going to do in Maryland. So, I, we have taken pieces, I think, of each of those models and combined them into something that I believe is new. But the other thing that was really important to me was to emphasize the importance of the state. Because everyone who's going to college and wants to to get access to federal funding, they deal with the federal government. But once you go to the state level, every state has their own governing agency or, or whatever that's involved in the process. And they have different aid programs and applications. And there's so much more that happens at the state level that I think some people forget about. In addition to the the financial aid side at the state level, there's also the educational preparation where personal finance is concerned. And some of that is dictated by the state and local jurisdictions. So I wanted to make sure that we included the state and we brought the state to the table so that our students not only have an understanding of the FAFSA, Federal Student Loans and Pell Grants, but the programs that are available from the Maryland Higher Education Commission. So I think we've taken the best of some of the other states' models and and added a little bit of spice (laughs) or something to it. A a little bit of, I'm in Maryland here, so I'll say maybe Old Bay. (laughs) And just made it something something a a bit different.
0: i love yeah I love that idea because i I think we talk about a little bit more about the the academic connectedness between k-12 and higher ed right and making sure students are prepared academically or that graduation requirements align to to your state institutions right there's been a lot of conversation there but you're you're absolutely right like from a, from a financial education and preparedness side, that needs to span the, the two as well. And sometimes I think higher ed doesn't always know how to navigate the K-12 system and the K-12 system doesn't know how to navigate higher ed. So having someone in the middle that has awareness and visibility into both, just like helping me realize that my faculty member is, is teaching financial literacy (laughs) on the other side (laughs) of campus. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's, it's really powerful. And I'd be interested to know like, what the reaction was because I see it as a great use of somebody else's resources, right? Like like how can we better utilize resources so we're not being duplicative and we're actually being additive?
1: We have tried very hard to, to push a continuum here in Maryland of financial education. So in the K-12 space, we have the Maryland Council on Economic Education and we stay in constant contact with them On the adult financial education side, we have the CASH campaign of Maryland, which is where the SPIN study was incubated. So we looked at what MCEE covers. They work a lot in the K-12 space and also in preparing new teachers to teach personal financial literacy content. And then CASH has a vast offering of financial education courses and events. And it seemed perfect. We've got K through 12 covered, we've got adult financial education covered, Then there's this big gap in the middle for the college and career school population. So why don't we put the center here and make sure that all three organizations are staying in touch routinely to just keep each other aware of what's happening in our respective spaces, but also partnering where there's overlap. So I have been just, I feel Truly blessed that I've been able to make connections with those two organizations because to come out and start something new and focus on such a large population with such unique financial concerns and challenges without having those two connections, I think it would create a lot of confusion because people would say, well, what what exactly are you doing? Are you going to get into high schools or is that someone else's space? The key is we work together and that makes the continuum of financial education and wellness in the state of Maryland stronger. Yeah.
0: I think that you're, you're a hundred percent right. Like that, that collaboration is really, is really key to being able to create transparency. I love the idea of focusing on the state level, but also as you talked about early on, you had, you had worked with some other states that were doing some innovative things. Is there a national movement around this as well, or a national collaborative where you guys are, are able to connect and find out what's working well? In other states on a routine basis?
1: Hmm, Not that I know of on the state level. I have definitely been in touch with the Higher Education Financial Wellness Alliance. Fan of their work and definitely leaned on them early on to say, what's going on? (laughs) Tell me (laughs) where you guys are going with this. But at the state level, while I'm not aware of an outlet where people can go to talk about things that are happening on a state level in that coordinated way. I'm not aware if there is something I want to find it <laughs> so that I can be a part of it because I, I definitely uh, want to share with others more about this journey and have them consider doing something similar in their, in their own states. Yeah. Well,
0: if there isn't, some, well, if there is something and someone knows about it, they should drop Tisa a line and let her know, because <laughs> I don't know either. That's why I asked. I haven't heard of one. And if there's not, we should definitely look at incubating something to, to yes. pull all of this together. And yeah, the, the higher ed financial wellness group is is amazing. They're a little more mm-hmm. focused on the university, <laughs> in, individual university level, right? Which Which is an important yeah. part in in creating that collaboration. But as we've talked about, think that it's really important to get the K-12 and the state connection mm-hmm. in there as well. What how do you measure success? Like when do we get like what are the benchmarks we should be looking at with with students to be able to know that we've achieved financial wellness for an individual?
1: I think it's a very individual journey. There's some general things like more success and less debt. (laughs) Those are my (laughs) big two. But there's also, I I think we can't do that without the acknowledgement of the individuals, how the individual feels about success. So for me, perhaps I will feel financially well when I've got $30,000 in savings and a job that pays six figures and lots of home equity. For another person, that stuff might be meaningless. They just want to feel good at the end of the day after they come home from work, knowing that they have basic necessities. So a large part of this is helping students figure out those individual goals, preferences, and then helping them achieve them. So I've shied away from things like saying, well, we want to reduce debt for everyone by 10% over the next five years that to me, it's nice to reduce debt for large groups of people. Mm -hmm. However, that it's not as easy as just setting some number like that and then expecting everyone to fall into line to make it happen, especially when investments in financial education and wellness programming aren't the greatest. (laughs) So I lean more on letting the institution listen to its students Listen to the people who are doing the work, and then the campus defines what success means for them. So, in my work with um you know people who are in financial aid, I know there's a lot of pressure to reduce debt. That's a great general goal, but I would not I wouldn't be eager to put hard numbers on it. Without listening to the students, giving it some time to see what's driving what looks like a high debt situation and what can you do with the individual students to help them make different decisions that may lead to less borrowing. So I think grace is a large part of this work because it's very tempting for people to put those types of hard metrics out there. And it's nice, you want to have goals, but if you're too specific and you don't know your audience, then you set yourself up to be disappointed. And for me, disappointment, it's not a good motivator. (laughs) I want people to be encouraged and to understand that this, so much of this is about individual preferences, goals, and behaviors. You don't want to try to put the student into a box based on what you think success should be. Talk to the students, acknowledge their feelings about success, and meet them where they are. You can enlighten them and bring them to a different place to include more in their own goals. But the idea is that they're a part of this. We're doing this for them. So we need to have them at the table so that we understand where they're coming from, where they want to go, and how we can help them get their best.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that but think it's really hard put in place as as someone who I'm very goal oriented and you're right it's it, it's important for us to understand that it's a continuum and it's different for every person and in fact by having some goals like you mentioned we can do we can have unintended consequences and actually do more harm to an individual's financial wellness than good and I I agree with you a lot, you know, I, in particular, when I look at the average federal indebtedness for a student who completes a four-year degree, we've, we've shown that there's pretty good ROI there, right? And so maybe, maybe the focus on just reducing average indebtedness isn't the, isn't the right thing. And we kind of have to, to figure out what that is. So, so I don't forget, I want to ask you about colleges that are doing this well, but I also want to ask just an opinion. There's been so much conversation about loan forgiveness and return on investment and loan, the, the loan pause, which is scheduled to maybe end on May 1. And I'm wondering what your opinion is. I have a tremendous fear that all of these conversations have actually harmed the, not necessarily financial wellness of, of students, but maybe the comprehension and the understanding, because we've kind of had this time where no one has to pay on their loans for two years and everybody's talking about debt forgiveness. Do you, do you think it's possible that these conversations over the last couple of years have actually harmed kind of the understanding and the knowledge that students have around debt?
1: I think that perhaps the CARES Act forbearance itself it's definitely created a degree of comfort mm-hmm. that I have not seen uh, before because there's no interest, there are no payments yeah. required. And I, I know that people understand that this is linked to a national emergency. So this is not something that happens often, but it's still, there's some comfort there in knowing that your debt is not growing the way that it normally would. So when we do return to repayment, there's going to be that new experience of the interest accruing that payment being due the expectation being that you're going to have to pay what you borrowed. So I think that it's definitely created comfort, comfort for many that was needed because of the pandemic I think that it's also increased awareness around student loans because the conversation is becoming much more mainstream. You know, there was a time when people would talk about student loan cancellation and people would say, oh, that's crazy. And now we're at a place where they're like, "Hmm, well, maybe not so much. You know, it's it's starting to shift from the fringes to the mainstream. I think that it has definitely increased awareness. And for that part, I think that's a good thing. Um, because more people are becoming aware of the availability of student loans to help pay for higher ed, but also some of the pitfalls that are associated with student loans, especially for those who don't necessarily understand the depth of what they're getting into when they borrow them. So I'm just, I am hopeful that whatever happens, if there is cancellation, if there is another extension of the CARES Act forbearance, I'm just hopeful that there is really some deliberate attention that's going to be paid to the higher ed financing system overall, because we know if Uh every debt is canceled, as soon as more student loans are originated, we'll go right back to the same place, unless the cost of higher ed declines, which we see no signs of happening. (laughs) So it's like, uh, it's one of those things where it can't, or it should not just be, if you're going to cancel it, cancel everything and keep the rest of it the same. It has to be in my opinion, if you're going to cancel, then there should also be some deliberate attention paid to the affordability side of things. But um, overall the conversations, i I have to say i'm I'm really impressed with the advocacy that I'm seeing because people are, you know speaking more about student loans and their experiences more freely than I've ever seen people speak about them before. And I think that the experiences of the borrowers are varied. But we also need to normalize talking about those things. Money is taboo, debt is taboo, yeah. student loans, really, really taboo because people think you're in higher ed, you should have known better. And, you know, <laughs> that's not always the case.
0: No. And to your point, college is expensive. I mean, mm-hmm. there, you know, there are, there are obviously much more affordable options out there that kind of span the continuum, but they, it is expensive and debt is a reality for, for a lot of people. And I I think that I loved one of the things that you said. I mean, I loved many of the things, but one in particular (laughs) about, I think that a lot of our first generation students and our low income students have been very afraid or unaware that there were, were resources out there to help them. So they've been afraid to they've been afraid to ask or to say that they're struggling financially. And I do hope, if nothing else, to your point that the that the, the pause has allowed people to recognize that it's it's okay to talk about things like financial difficulty, financial trauma that they've that they've faced in order to better fund and understand how to fund their education. Mm-hmm. And so if if nothing else if pulling that to the forefront I and I also totally agree I am a big proponent wiping out any portion of student debt does no good if we don't reform the financing system and and other because we're just going to end up in the same place that that we're in today it's funny I'll see I'll see people talking about the increased student loan debt, right? Like going, Oh, it's gone from 1.6 to 1.7 trillion. Right. And I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. do you realize that in the last two years, the only reason the student debt volume has gone up is because people are taking out new loans to your point, right? Like there's no interest. Like this isn't, Mm -hmm. this isn't people get, this is people taking on new debt over the last two years. So Mm -hmm. it's going to continue to happen if we don't reform in some way,
1: mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: So, as you've worked with the institutions in Maryland, who is doing this financial wellness thing really well? Like, what are mm-hmm. some specific examples? Some institutions you want to call out as like just mm-hmm. sitting at the top?
1: I'd have to say uh, there were two that we highlighted in the SPIN study who have done a great job and have been at the forefront of this. One is the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. They have a campus-wide uh, financial literacy and education committee. They have people from financial aid. They have people from faculty, other people from external organizations. And they have just, to me, they've mastered this idea of cross-campus collaboration. They have robust programming. They actually have a position they're now responsible for financial literacy. And that position, of course, comes from being able to point to that work they've had in the past and justify additional investments. So I am really just proud of UMBC and and glad to be connected with them and and to consider myself a partner. I also would say Bowie State University. Bowie State also has a lot of partners on campus, and they also have a financial literacy coordinator that's extremely enthusiastic (laughs) and, and hosts so many programs. I mean, it's just the level of partnership that I see there at Bowie State University and at UMBC that it's so encouraging to me because it shows you what happens when a person is able to step out of their office. They're able to branch out and meet other people. They're able to connect and and harness the power of their resources for the student's benefit. So those two are definitely standouts.
0: I love that. So two last questions for you. Do you think that financial wellness or financial literacy I like to separate the two, like financial aid Mm -hmm. literacy and financial literacy, but do you think they should be, do you think they should be required as part of the K-12 and the college curriculum?
1: I definitely think financial literacy should be a requirement. It's a life skill. And it's something that I recall, you know, learning about when I was in school. And I guess over time, it just kind of faded like home ec, you know, (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) But home ec was one of my favorite classes. It was extremely useful. And I still use some of the things that I learned in that class today. And I, I think the same for money. It's something that people who don't know as much about money, can end up being taken advantage of. That that ignorance is expensive. And I think that by baking it into the K uh, through 12 experience, we can help people into the marketplace more informed, more empowered, and less likely to be taken advantage of. And that's why empowered is one of um, the six pillars of financial wellness that we focus on through McFew. So I, I think that it should be included. It's it's a tough spot though, because whenever you tell people, whether K through 12 or in the college and career school space, it needs to be there. As soon as the word mandate comes about, everybody's ah, <laughs> mandates, you know, <laughs> we don't want any mandates. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And I completely understand why the word mandate is such a a trigger for some people. I think that in the case of financial education, I don't know if there is such a thing as a welcome mandate in that space, but I think that this is one, I don't see a downside. What is the downside of people learning more about money during their K-12 experience? What is the downside of them learning a bit more about it during their college or career school experience, especially when, as you said earlier, that's the most expensive and complex decision that a student will have to make up to that point in their lives. So If there's a module that can be added to something that's existing, that's one way to go. If there's a a short course that people are required to take, that's another way. But for the center, we have shied away from the everyone needs to do it and everyone needs to do it this way. It's more of, okay, talk to us about your campus culture. You know, what do orientation courses look like? Do you have a business school? What are ways that we can bake this in to the existing infrastructure without having to come from the outside and push a mandate?
0: Yeah. I can appreciate that, especially in your position. I think I have probably become a little less understanding and I'm in a place where I'm thinking we've, we've been talking about financial literacy and financial wellness for my entire career. I've been in, <laughs> in higher ed and financing for 20 years. And I know that we are making steps to improve, but, but broadly I I get concerned that, like you were saying, like some of those components that we maybe had in school, I learned how to balance a checkbook. If I said that to my daughter who is 13, she'd be like, Checkbook, what are you (laughs) talking about? (laughs) She's like, You just pull out your ATM card, you don't need to balance your check. Yeah. I mean, -hmm. and so I think that there, I'm actually concerned that there is even less awareness about financial interaction and financial knowledge with, with our generations today. And so I'm kind of leaning towards like, this needs to be a requirement in the state curriculum. Now, how that happens to your point, is it standalone? Is it part of, of a business course or part of some other math course that, that students are taking? That's fine, but we've feel like people need to start making a better commitment to this. I think um, the financial education and knowledge used to come from the home space as well, where it's maybe, maybe we have, have more people who are unfamiliar as, as parents, even with good financial literacy. And so I do kind of, I'm kind of in a place right now where I'm starting to think that This does need to happen much more intentionally across the entire spectrum of students. So I know you don't want to, you don't want to impose a mandate, keep good relationships. I'll go out on the limb and say, (laughs) we should have one. (laughs) (laughs) I have learned so much about you and your organization and I appreciate it. I would like to have you share with listeners how they can get in touch with you, but also Would love just to hear, how did this become your
1: passion? Wow. So um, they can visit the center online at mccfw.org. We're on social media at the McFew. That's at T-H-E-M-C-C-F-W. As for me, my mother was an accountant. So I have roots in balance sheets and income statements, (laughs) making sure that money is flowing properly and accounted for. But I have to say that I think a lot of this began for me in middle school. I had a principal who required us in the seventh grade to take the SAT. And I took the SAT and she told me your score is pretty good. You know, maybe someone will pay for you to go to their college one day. And so I started to learn about scholarships, ended up making a deal with my parents saying that, you know what? Hey, if I get a scholarship, we've all take the money you saved for me to go to college and buy me a car. And they agreed to it. <laughs> so at that point, you know, seventh or eighth grade, that was my journey to having someone else finance my education so that I could get a car. And it just gave me an early look into the cost of college, into ways to pay for it and the importance of my academics as a means to finance my higher education journey. So the seed for me was planted at home, but also with that principle. And from there, there, there was just, I always had money and education on my mind. And when I got to college, and I learned how many other people were paying to be there, you know, whereas I was on a scholarship and how many people were borrowing student loans. That's when I had this awakening, like, wait, everyone couldn't get a scholarship, you know, like, I yeah. could. Their, you know, their parents are taking out debt. You know, this is just it was just totally it, there was an awakening for me. And at that point, I began helping people with personal finance and also just always thinking about the more education I get, I've got to find somebody else to pay for it. And I would love if everyone were fortunate enough to have others invest in them so that they would not have to go into debt for education. But I know that that's not reality. That's not the space that we're in. So at some point over the years, it just became really important to me to help people maximize the ROI in higher education and use as much outside funding as they possibly can, but to also So not so much focus on getting someone else to pay for it, but really giving your all, setting yourself up for success and recognizing that who's paying for it, that contributes a lot (laughs) to to your success. So long story short, lots of inspiration as a child, awakening in college, and then seven years at a graduate professional institution, counseling people through six-figure student loan debt. The combination of all of those experiences has just made me feel as though many of us are not well, financially speaking. And if I can help another person achieve wellness by managing their finances in a way that's more fitting for them, that's more manageable for them, then I've done my job.
0: I love that. You never know where the spark or the connection Mm -hmm. is or is going to come from from a for a person right and so when you when you think about that very simple comment from from a principal to you and and how it's blossomed into this career and i i personally believe so strongly that financial wellness is not in a vacuum an, an individual's personal and financial wellness is so tightly related to their their physical wellness, their mental well-being, mm-hmm. their levels of stress, and so as as we start to address broader financial wellness, the ripple effect that it can have on an individual's lives and the lives of those around them is is really just profound. So I appreciate you taking your time, sharing your story. We will make sure to list your contact information, a link to the spin study, um, and the McPhew center in the show notes. If as a listener, you've enjoyed today's show, the best way to show your support is to follow like, or add a review on your favorite podcast platform. Also consider sharing this episode with your network to keep the conversation going. If you're looking for more ways to join the conversation, consider joining the student financial success, Slack channel, LinkedIn group, or tagging content with the hashtag student financial success. I'm always looking for guests, feedback, questions, and topic suggestions. So please reach out my contact information as always is available in today's show notes.